Hello everybody and welcome back to what is going to be my conclusion of Now Voyager, my look at Den of Geeks roadmap to Star Trek Voyager. Season 6 of Voyager saw Ronald D. Moore, one of Trek's best writers from The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, join the writing staff, a move I heard about at the time and thought was a great idea. He lasted three episodes. Now, it can't be that Moore's lack of understanding of Star Trek led to his abbreviated tenure on Voyager. Rather, it was Moore's belief that the series never lived up to its true potential. His points came to a head on the very first episode of the season, Equinox Part 2, a show he felt had enormous potential to do something different and daring with the characters. Play Ransom against Janeway. Let her see why he's doing this and let him understand why she's managed to get this far without betraying her principles. Janeway's anger at Ransom killing innocent beings is well played by Janeway and Kate Mulgrew, but it never goes far enough. It doesn't help that once again she's let down by her scene partner. Robert Beltran as Chakotay continues to display a total apathy for the role, even when he's actually given something to do. Here is confrontation with Janeway, where she relieves him of command, should have exploded with fireworks. Imagine a similar scene between Shatner and Nimoy, Stuart and Frakes, or Brooks and Visitor, or even Bacula and Trinia, and this scene would have soared. Sadly, Beltram's boredom means Chakotay never rises above slightly annoyed at this development. The other actors, though, do well. Bailana is just as pissed off as Janeway that her former lover and friend, as revealed in part one, has betrayed them, and Dawson rises to the challenge. Did no one ever think of killing off Chakotay and promoting Bailana? That probably would have made for a far more interesting dynamic. Mulgrew again brings another dimension to Janeway. Pushed to the edge, angry and rapidly approaching Ahab levels of vengeance, Janeway starts crossing lines that even Sisko would think twice about, and she is pretty compelling in the role. Picardo, in a dual role as the AMH on the Equinox and Voyager, is once again a joy, and the episode as a whole is entertaining enough. But, as Moore found out to his cost, Voyager wasn't like Deep Space Nine. It wasn't interested in pushing the envelope or truly exploring the character dynamics. Its approach to development was largely superficial, and if you want to see a story of an exceptional captain who truly goes rogue in the services of keeping her crew safe, you need to look at Battlestar Galactica's Pegasus arc. Let's just have a quick look here. Who, who wrote that? Who wrote that? Ah, ah, here we go, yeah. Oh, Ronald E. Moore. For all these reasons and more, Equinox's ending is quite unsatisfying. Throughout, the EMH has had his ethical subroutines deleted, and he's press-ganged into working on the Equinox, whilst the Equinox EMH has been working undercover on Voyager. Fine, but when Ransom finally sees the error of his ways and frees the captive EMH and Seven, he suddenly has his ethical subroutines back with no explanation. Voyager's EMH also manages to disable the Equinox's EMH with no problems whatsoever. The resolution is deeply predictable. There was never any question that the Equinox crew, or at least Ransom, would die, and the episode fulfills that promise, with Ransom dying a hero and going down with his ship. Janeway gives Chakotay his rank back in a log entry. 
not even a scene. The characters joke about Janeway and Chakotay's differences. Consequences? What consequences? I presume that the Equinox crew that remain on Voyager were never seen again. As an action piece of work, this is a good season opener. Even the character development, with the caveat that Voyager's producers weren't really interested in changing the status quo, is good, especially with Janeway, the EMH, and Seven of Nine. The ending, where Janeway's confused state of mind is represented by the dedication plaque of Voyager having fallen off the wall, is a nice touch. It's a physical representation of Janeway's confusion, and that she recognises it as such is a good thing for the character. It means she's not quite crossed that obsession line just yet. We skip to episode 6 next for Riddles. Neelix and Tuvok are returning from a meeting with the Cursat. Neelix is being characteristically annoying whilst Tuvok just wants to play on his phone. Suddenly Tuvok is attacked and Neelix is left alone to contact Voyager. Voyager contacts the Kazat and they tell them that there is a race of cloaked aliens, the Baneth, who they have been trying to prove really do exist for many years. The Baneth apparently steal tactical data from others, but the clue into curing Tuvok lies with them, a race that, on the face of it, doesn't exist. The episode is an odd one. Neelix and Tuvok's story worked quite well due to the sincerity of Tim Russ and Ethan Phillips' performances. Neelix feels immense guilt over just watching Tuvok be attacked by an invisible enemy. And the story seems to be playing with the idea of Tuvok being a victim of a, a stroke or similar melody. And seeing this vibrant, intelligent man cut down and being unable to communicate is affecting and emotional. The Barneth are an intriguing science fiction idea, a cloaked race who steal what they need and as such are believed to not even exist. However, as good as the dialogue, performances and basic story are, the split between the two stories isn't really balanced out. I was far more invested in the Barneth storyline than the Tuvok Neelix one, through no fault of the writing or acting, just my knowledge of the show. Even the writers like Lisa Klink and Michael Sussman have mentioned the notion that Voyager was required to return to the status quo at the end of every episode, and this meant that certain story issues don't really have much of an impact. Now again, this is no fault of the show, this is what TV was back then. And let's be honest, no one really believed that Kirk was dead at the end of a mock time. But a mock time is wrapped up in an engaging story that all comes together, whereas this, despite sharing some DNA, is two different stories competing for her time. I guess what I'm saying is, the episode isn't at all bad, but the Tuvok Neelix drama just didn't engage me. I guess if this is on a must-watch list, then there must be something in this episode that didn't work for me that did connect with others. Sadly, I found this story very rushed, a result of the two plot lines not being allowed to breathe. There's an intriguing subplot about the Kassat being on an obsessive quest to prove the existence of the Barneth that goes nowhere other than to provide the magic cure for Tuvok. All told, I can't tell if the problem was with me or with the episode. We skip off to episode 12 for Blink of an Eye and hopefully a more enjoyable segment. Voyager is dragged into the orbit of a planet whereby nearly an entire day goes by in the same time that the Voyager crew experience a single second. This is an excellent opportunity for scientific research, but of course, if Voyager's orbit decays, the crew will live their lives out in the blink of an eye. Take a drink. 
More impressive, though, is that large chunks of the story are told from the point of view of the planet that sees Voyager as a large star in the sky, a star that they observe over multiple generations from our point of view. The episode shows a basic premise with an original series episode, the similarly titled Wink of an Eye, but then it does it far better than that third season did. And that's just one of the high points of this really rather excellent science fiction fable. There are interesting things to be said about the Prime Directive in a situation such as this, where Voyager has been part of the planet's mythology for centuries and caused damage to the ecosystem inadvertently, and then how to proceed in a way that helps Voyager escape orbit, whilst also nullifying any further damage. Janeway elects to send the EMH down, and seeing him live three years over the course of a commercial break is fascinating, in that we don't see this from his point of view. We see him beam down, and then when he beams back up, three years have passed, despite him leaving but a few seconds ago from our point of view. Humour is also well handled in the episode. Voyager's only child, Naomi Wildman, pens a story about the planet that Seven entitles The Weird Planet That Was Displaced in Time, which sounds like the Japanese translation of the title of this episode. The many different theories of what the Voyager could be are examined over the centuries, from the more superstitious guesses of the early years to the scientific theories of later on. The Voyager has prompted a wonderful evolution of scientific advancement on the planet, but this again causes Janeway Prime Directive headaches. One such is when a rocket finally breaks orbit and allows two astronauts access to Voyager, where they see the crew moving incredibly slowly. Again, a possible nod to that original series episode. The sudden shock of time catching up kills one of the astronauts, but the other, played by Daniel Day Kim, is saved by the EMH. The bonding between Daniel Day Kim's character and the EMH, over whatever the planet's equivalent of football is, is genuinely touching, and Kim helps the crew figure out how to leave orbit. Blink of an Eye is a beautiful little science fiction tale. There's a sense of wonder to it, the idea of there being something out there that forces the planet to make advancements in the name of science. The writers do pay lip service to a more militaristic notion. There are apparently many on the planet who are fearful and would prefer that weapons were aimed at Voyager. And ultimately this does lead to an attack on the ship. Also, some fascinating ideas are glossed over. The EMH had a son in the three years he was away. But overall, there's a joy to the episode that translates into compelling drama. It's one of Voyager's most satisfying entries. Not on the roadmap, and an episode I watched purely by accident, because I'm an idiot, I downloaded the wrong one from Netflix whilst I was away from work, was an episode entitled The Voyager Conspiracy. With limited Wi-Fi, I watched it anyway. It's actually a pretty entertaining episode. Seven overloads on information and then starts putting together wacky conspiracy theories that various crew members are up to no good. Seven's increasingly unhinged string of coincidental happenings that she somehow conflates together is a hysterical piss take of the various incomprehensible knots the X-Files writers would tie themselves up in. It's a decent reminder this was written when that kind of conspiracy bollocks was all the rage. I have no idea if this episode was to be taken seriously, but given how more and more bizarre Seven's theories become, I kind of doubt it. Intentional or not, the Voyager conspiracy was another winner. Now, one of the areas I have been very critical of Voyager before starting this roadmap was in the acting. 
And yet it's the acting that frequently saves an average or mediocre script. Case in point, Memorial, a really rather obvious piece about the horrors of war that is nowhere near as engaging as the writers clearly think it is. It has good moments, such as Bellana building Tom an old-fashioned TV for him to watch cartoons on. And the wacky stuff is at first engaging, but it becomes duller the further along you go. Better by far, an episode tossed out on the roadmap as watch it if you want, but far more engaging in both writing and character is Muse. This episode sees Bailana and Harry crash land on a planet, whereby they are assisted by Space Shakespeare, who takes the log entries from their shuttlecraft and turns them into a play for his patron, Space Meatloaf. Bailana ends up helping Space Shakespeare with a satisfactory ending to his story. I really enjoyed this episode. It's an episode of Star Trek that takes the point of view of the aliens, and these can be very hit and miss, but what makes this work is its meta-commentary. There are loads of gags about having to come up with a new script every seven days, servicing the characters in believable ways and finding the truth of your story. But the show within a show does what good Star Trek always does, which is provide a parable for the viewer. In this case, it's waking up Space Meatloaf to his warmongering ways after his attack on a neighbouring colony. It's a really clever script, well written, and featuring a great performance from Roxanne Dawson as Balana. That's two episodes, not on the roadmap, that are better than the ones that are. I'm starting to doubt the veracity of this roadmap. So let's ignore it then, should we? Pathfinder is an off-concept episode only recommended on the roadmap as part of the crossovers pathway. This is due to it only featuring the Voyager crew as holodeck representations for the first two-thirds of its running time, and then as themselves only in the last act. Instead, the episode focuses on Reg Barclay, a returning Dwight Schultz who has become obsessed with Voyager and returning them home. As such, he's had a minor relapse into his hollow addiction as he creates Voyager simulations to try and help with the problems. He is relieved of duty and sent to a counsellor, Deanna Troy, yet another returning Next Generation cast member, Marina Sirtis. However, when Barclay finds some double-tart way of communicating with the Voyager crew in reality, he risks his career to prove his theories are sound. Again, another one that I really enjoyed. Dwight Schultz, forever typecast as Howling Mad Murdoch, is exceptional as Barclay, and Sirtis gets more to do here than she did in a half dozen Next Generation episodes. Sure, the Voyager crew plays second fiddle to Barclay, but who cares? They have another 25 episodes this season. Star Trek has played with the theme of obsession before, even in Voyager, but something like this rings true with Barclay, a character who, if he wasn't in Star Trek, would probably be its biggest fan. The ending, where Barclay proves his ideas sound and Starfleet Command actually get to speak to Janeway in person, is surprisingly touching. Made all the more so for including Tom Paris's father in the mix, played by Jean Rivette, Richard Hurd. Oddly, Admiral Paris has a picture of Nick Locarno on his desk. Pathway is a really good episode, demonstrating that Starfleet are following through on their promise to try and find Voyager and bring her home. As such, it's quite important to the overall arc of the series, providing the crew with a small measure of hope. This plotline is followed up in Lifeline, again only on the roadmap in the crossover section. Barclay has found a way to communicate briefly with Voyager once a month, allowing for an exchange of information. This coincides with the creator of the EMH, Dr Zimmerman, a dual role for Robert Picardo, falling ill, and only Voyager's EMH, with his extra Delta Quadrant knowledge, can save him, if 
Janeway will agree to beaming his programme back in lieu of messages from the crew to their loved ones and family. The basic premise of this one is silly. Janeway will allow the only doctor the ship has to be sent 30,000 light years away for a month, leaving only Tom Paris as acting physician. Really? I sure hope Voyager doesn't get attacked or undergo a flu epidemic or something. Then, Janeway has to convince the entire crew that they can't send their messages to their loved ones or send important data that could get them back home quicker because they want to send the AMH back and they can't do both. Sure wish I'd seen that conversation, especially as they don't have any real clue that the EMH programme will make it through. There's also a goof later in the story. Deanna Troy arrives to help Reginald Barclay in the EMH, and she can't tell the difference between the EMH and Dr Zimmerman, and she has to ask which one's the hologram. Later on, in that same episode, she can tell that Zimmerman's aid is a hologram, due to the aide's lack of empathy or feelings. Make your mind up, writers. If we ignore these issues, though, and just go along with the story, this is another delightful showcase for Picardo, although Barclay and Troy are somewhat wasted this time. Not as essential as Pathfinder, I can see why this one isn't on the roadmap, but I enjoyed it all the same. The story continued into Season 7, An Inside Man. The first thing I notice about Season 7, a season that is otherwise indistinguishable from Season 6, is that Seven of Nine has a new blue outfit, and she looks absolutely stunning. The blue really sets off her eyes. And other things. In this chapter of the Reginald Barclay Chronicles, this month's data stream from Starfleet is curiously big, and Harry and Seven realise it's because it's an inversion of last time. Starfleet are trying to send a hologram to them. When Seven decrypts the message, it's a hologram of Barclay, and a far more confident and assured character he is. Oh, dearie, dearie me. After the excellent Pathfinder and the adequate lifeline, Inside Man pretty much squanders all that goodwill with a silly story involving the Ferengi. The Ferengi intercept the hollow transmission of Barclay and reprogram it to steal seven so they can sell her nanoprobes for tons of latinum. I mean, they'd have to kill the entire Voyager crew to achieve this goal, but whatever. I found this one to be a huge misstep. It's a shaggy dog story because Voyager isn't getting home yet, although it would have been interesting if it had. So the story becomes how it engages the interest, given that the conclusion is in no doubt. The Ferengi add nothing. And there's a scene in the middle where Deanna and the real Barclay meet on a beach and chat about his love life. It is exactly as boring as it sounds, highlighted only by the busty B to Z's bathing costume. The Starfleet stuff has moments. It's nice to see Admiral Paris again, although Barclay's boss, once again, doubting Barclay, just as he did in Pathfinder, is incredibly repetitive. There is a nice scene where Troy gets her own back on a manipulative con woman who tricks Barclay into giving her the information about Pathfinder that she then sells on to the Ferengi. But overall, what could have been a really good conclusion to this arc is wasted. It's not completely useless. Tom Paris's cynicism, yet another shock at home just falling into their laps, is amusing. And Schultz, playing an ultra-cocky version of Barclay, is again hugely entertaining. But I think we'll stop going off-piste and jump back to the roadmap. Body and Soul, episode 7 of the 7th and final season of Voyager, is, appropriately enough, a 7 of 9 episode, but with a twist. 
Harry, the EMH and Seven are doing stuff in the Delta Flyer when they are boarded by a race with a mad-on for photonic beings, i.e. holograms. To avoid problems, Seven takes the EMH hologram into her own programming, allowing Jerry Ryan the opportunity to play the EMH. Back on Voyager, the crew encounter the same race and are forced to deactivate the holodecks just as Tuvok needs them to relieve his sexual anxiety because he's just undergoing ponfar. Sex is at the forefront of this episode, which is quite a shock given how asexual Voyager has been thus far. The EMH gets positively orgasmic over Cheesecake, is kissed by an alien captain and is attracted him, herself, to the first officer. Meanwhile, Tuvok takes Tom Paris's advice to recreate his missus on the holodeck to indulge in some holographic nookie to alleviate his ponfer. To the episode's credit, it's not an outright comedy, but rather a comedy drama enhanced by Ryan's incredibly unsubtle but hysterical performance. I have no idea why the aliens hate holograms so much, but the story, such as it is, is a slight excuse for the cast to have fun. Poor Garrett Wang gets to play straight man to Picardo and Ryan, and McNeil, who also does an admiral job in the director's chair, gets to play amusement at poor Tuvok's situation, while still helping his friend out with the holodeck programme. Overall, Body and Soul isn't terribly deep, but it is an awful lot of fun. By contrast, Lineage, like Body and Soul, written by James Kahn, is a pretty serious character piece. I wonder if this is the same James Kern who wrote the novels to Return of the Jedi and, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Hmm. Ponderings aside, Lineage sees Belana and Tom, now married, discover that Belana is pregnant, and this kicks off all kinds of concerns in Belana about the Klingon part of her and her impending daughter's heritage. This is quite a deep exploration of family and what that means. We all have things about ourselves we don't like, but what if we could change them in utero? Deep Space Nine pondered this very question with regards to Dr. Bashir's genetically enhanced status, but this is a more personal story. Belana's issues stem from a childhood rejection from her father, and as we all know, the things that scur us as children can contribute to our greatest fears as adults. Lineage is a nicely written character study, well acted by Dawson and McNeil. The joy everyone feels at having another baby on Voyager is quite palpable, as the writers continue to focus on the idea that Voyager have become a family, not just a crew. Up next, the two-part workforce. It's unusual for a Star Trek show of this vintage to have a two-part story in the middle of the season like this. As a rule, they either err as movie-length adventures for rating purposes, as with Flesh and Blood this season, which is not part of the roadmap, or as season cliffhangers. Workforce is an intriguing and off-concept show, ostensibly about how our jobs are frequently used as a measure of our worth. Throwing the viewer into a plot already in progress always works as a storytelling device, and having the crew settled and content in this new situation also works to keep us on our toes. There are some really fun character beats in part one as well. Paris and Balana find each other, despite whatever the situation is, and Janeway, free from command, finds herself in a rather nice relationship. Especially amusing is Harry Kim's stomachache and his constant arguing with the EMH as to who should command Voyager when everyone else is off the ship. As the story progresses, we find out the crew have been mind-wiped and forced to work in a planetary refining complex, a situation that none of them find that disagreeable. Tuvok, however, keeps skipping the inoculations that keep the mind-wipe working properly, and slowly he starts to question all that is happening. 
At this point, the show becomes another one of Star Trek's well-worn explorations of a gilded cage still being a cage. Chakotay, Harry, Neelix and the EMH, the only crew members who were off shit when all this happened, have to convince Janeway and co that this isn't the reality. Nods to Fritz Lang's Metropolis abound, but credit the writers for some subtlety in the writing, especially in part two when Seven starts logically figuring all this out. Now, granted, Tuvok should have handled all this and was set up as such in part one, but for some reason he got lost in the shuffle. Kudos also to Harry Kim, who essentially saves the crew. Why is this guy still an ensign? Overall, Workforce is that Rur Trek two-part story that works throughout its extended runtime rather than running out of steam in part two. Nice to see Ralph Malth, actor Donnie Most, in there as well. The final episode in the roadmap, although not the final episode I'll be looking at, is Author Author, the 20th episode of the season. The EMH has become a writer, portraying hologrammatic creations as oppressed life forms and his crewmates as barbaric, cruel versions of themselves. As befits an episode based around Picardo, Arthur Arthur has moments of genuine amusement, as well as some wonderful prescient commentary in an age of Twitter critics who think they can write this stuff better than the prose. Go and type in Game of Thrones into Twitter if you need evidence of what I say. The crew's reaction to the EMH's alterations to their characters is really fun, with him arguing that his story is a programme of substantial social commentary, whereas the crew see it as an almost libelous fiction that could ruin their careers. Paris teaches the EMH a lesson when he reprograms the story to show the EMH as a lecherous, egotistical irritant. Particularly amusing is Paris's rewriting of Seven as a pouting sex kitten, a role Jerry Ryan particularly seems to relish. The funny, though, accompanies a serious side, as the story focuses once again on the idea that the EMH, like Data, has become sentient enough to feel that his brothers, other EMHs that are considered obsolete and are left cleaning toilets and mining dilithium, as we learned in Lineage, are being used as slaves. It's similar to Measure of a Man in that regard, but it also uses a lot of Voyager continuity, including appearances by Barclay and Tom Paris's father. The show then turns into a discussion of the rights of the artistic creator, and there's a lot going on here. It's to the writer's credit that it works as well as it does. It's also a wonderful ensemble piece, with everybody being given something interesting to do. Well, except Robert Beltran, who again barely bothers to show up to work. It's an excellent episode, arguably one of the best. It measures its drama and comedy perfectly and handles character brilliantly, be it Tom giving Harry his contact time with Earth so Harry can wish his mother a happy birthday, to Seven making contact with her own aunt. Still, I do struggle with the idea that a hologram has sentience, but Arnold Rimmer seems pretty human, so who can say? The outcome that the EMH retains artistic control and the programme be removed from publication instantly seems a bit daft. After all, once a data file is out, though, as we all know, it's there forever. Thankfully, the story addresses this in its last moments and it provides a provocative ending. The roadmap ends here. Seems remarkably silly to me. Voyager has a last episode that wraps it all up and not including it seems really stupid. So, I am watching Endgame, the double-length conclusion to the series. Essentially a rewrite of all good things, in so much as an elderly Admiral Janeway goes back in time to help Voyager return home 16 years earlier than she should, Endgame is ultimately incredibly frustrating. 
Starting 33 years after the series premiere and 10 years after Voyager returned home, the scenes on Earth are all really effective as we catch up with the crew and where they all are now. Thankfully, Chakotay is dead, so we're spurred a few splinters, as we learn that Janeway feels guilt that she didn't take the Voyager through a series of temporal hubs they discovered that allow the Borg to jump around in space. Due to heavy Borg presence, Captain Janeway elected to not take the risk. But in the future, Admiral Janeway takes a temporal trip backwards to give the Voyager crew a technology upgrade with systems that don't exist yet to allow them to do battle with the Borg and take the Voyager home. <laughs> I apologise for nothing. Both the story and character developments in this episode make little to no sense. Chakotay and Seven are an item? When did that happen? And Janeway seemingly chucks the Prime Directive out the airlock just so she can bring the crew home earlier. But it seems to me she got them home. And they lost Chakotay, so I'd consider that a win. I mean, yes, they also lose Seven, who apparently marries Commander Copes, and Tuvok has a degenerative disease, which is easily cured in the Alpha Quadrant, but not so much in the Delta, so he's not doing too good in the future. But no one said the job was easy. Everyone else seems to be doing just fine in the future. Admiral Janeway seems to think that the Prime Directive can be ignored wholesale if the people she cares about are the ones affected. What about the people who lived and died in those 33 years? Not just the Earth, but all the other planets in the Federation. Admiral Janeway never bothers to think about them. She cares for nothing but her own selfish desires to save two people and get the crew home early at any cost. It's a betrayal of the character who spent seven years standing fast to her principles to have her as an older woman just throw all that away. Whatever happened to the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. It's then you realise... Admiral Janeway is the villain of the story. Her motivations are no different than Sorin in Star Trek Generations or Thanos in Infinity War. She cares not for the greater good. She cares only about herself. And don't get me started on how easily Admiral Janeway manages to get the technology to not only travel back in time, but to hop over to the Delta Quadrant. Why not give the technology that lets her do that to Voyager? Ultimately, I didn't really believe that Captain Janeway would listen to Admiral Janeway. Captain Janeway wouldn't risk this just to save two crew members, even when it's pointed out that she loses hundreds of crew members along the way. She'd accept it. It's part of the job. As another Starfleet captain once pointed out, risk is our business. It's especially galling in that Admiral Janeway's presence shows that not only did the crew get home... But with the future knowledge, surely she can prevent Seven's death. Of course, Admiral Janeway comes up with a way to destroy the Borg hub and get Voyager back, because why should the writers have Janeway make a genuinely hard choice? As an aside, Kate Mulgrew apparently wanted Janeway to get the crew home at the cost of Janeway's life, so she at least appreciated the need to show that there was a price to all this. Having Admiral Janeway die makes no difference, as her timeline gets wiped out anyway. There's no emotional truth or depth to any of it. And there's a god-awful cheesy moment where Harry Kim gives a speech. <sighs> that said, the actual episode does play out in an entertaining fashion. There's a lot of fun eye candy, some good character moments such as Belana finally giving birth, and the reappearance of the Borg Queen as played by Alice Krieg. 
Endgame plods along well for most of its runtime, despite its problems. Until the end. The actual ending stinks. After the whole shebang, we get a single shot of Voyager flying towards Earth. And that's it. No aftermath, no real resolution, no satisfying conclusion, just, oh yeah, we got home. Roll credits. Whereas all good things worked as a finale, despite the impending movies, and what we leave behind really wrapped things up, satisfying or unsatisfyingly, depending on your point of view, Voyager ultimately disappoints. I can't help but think that this double-length episode should have been the penultimate show, followed by a quiet grace note, similar to Babylon 5's final episode, Sleeping in Light. Why bother to get Dwight Schultz and Richard Hurd back and then not show the reunion between them and the characters? For God's sake, Hurd is playing Paris's dad, and yet there's barely a glance between them. He never even gets to meet his granddaughter. What about the loose ends regarding the Marquis? Tom Paris was in jail when the series began. How about wrapping up that loose end? But the writers can't be arsed. It's not the endgame in and of itself is bad. It, it isn't. As usual for a Voyager time travel show, it's quite clever and inventive. I just felt that the show should perhaps have serviced its characters better. Maybe that was Voyager's problem from the beginning. So, the great experiment is over. Has my opinion of Voyager changed? Well, yes and no. Now, I know that sounds wishy-washy, but I'm really not trying to be. I hope I've been as fair as possible to this project as I can be. I've said this many times before. I don't want to dislike a Star Trek show. I am the show's audience. There are some things I enjoy and have grown up with that I've outgrown. Or the creators have changed who they are aiming the product at. In those cases, I'm willing to walk away. If the producers are right, they will find a new audience that aren't me, and the shows will grow and thrive and flourish, and that's fine. I'll still have the stuff I do enjoy. But Voyager was made as a direct sequel to The Next Generation. It was produced whilst Deep Space Nine was still on the air, and The Next Generation movies were still a thing. I was, and still am, the target audience for this series, and yet it never clicked with me in first run. And in this rewatch, I've realised why. The producers never really believed in Voyager. They didn't have the courage to really run with the show's premise. Something I've noted all the way through this roadmap review is that the premise of the show isn't the show. The premise is interesting. Take away Starfleet, the almost magical technology, the ease in which the ship can get equipment and supplies, the familiar alien races, and then chuck Voyager out where it has none of these things. Make the crew a composite of disparate individuals that don't get on, that aren't all Starfleet, that don't necessarily agree with Janeway, and then stand back and watch the explosions. That premise has stories that writes itself, where do the crew get their food and water from when the replicators fail? How do they keep the shuttles running when they have no supplies? Do they make additions to Voyager based upon alien technology? What happens when the crew decide they don't want to spend 75 years on a starship? What happens when relationships are struck up? How does Voyager cope with new mouths to feed? Are we really supposed to believe that only two couples had sex for the entire seven years the show was on the air? So do we address abortion, marriage, divorce... 
And within this, a magnificent science fiction premise of a stranded crew in an unknown section of space and all the drama that that entails. Let's do Space 1999 or Lost in Space properly. Sadly, Voyager never did that show. By the end of the pilot episode, everyone was in Starfleet uniforms. Janeway was never wrong. The crew never seemed to struggle for food, water, clothing, fuel, all the things that could have been real human drama amidst the whiz-bang. Voyager avoided all of that. That part of the show, that lack of honour to your premise, still rankles me. However, this rewatch allows me to watch the show the producers did give us. And taken on its own merits, it's not half bad. The cast is almost all excellent. Kate Mulgrew was the real revelation, and I really grew to like Janeway, especially when she got all badass and acted like a proper captain. Robert Picardo, Jerry Ryan, Roxanne Biggs-Dawson, Robert Duncan McNeil, and Ethan Phillips proved their worth, when given the chance. Even poor Garrett Wang rose to the challenge when given the opportunity. Only Robert Beltran couldn't rise above mediocrity. Now, I know Chakotay was a massive stiff as a character, and I know Beltran hated the show, but lots of actors dislike the show they're working on, but you'd never know it from the finished product. Pete Doole disliked Alias Smith & Jones. Paul Michael Glazer resented the producers on Starsky & Hutch. Jan Michael Vincent was incredibly difficult on Erwolf. And Clay Crawford and Damon Wayans loathed each other on Lethal Weapon. None of this is present on screen. Beltran couldn't display his boredom more openly, both on and off screen, if he just yawned his way through each scene and be done with it. Given the amount he badmouthed the writers and producers, if I was one of them, I'd have killed Chakotay off long before season three. The show, when taken as an adjunct to the next generation, actually had some good stories amidst the techno babble, some proper Star Trek stories. Yes, it relied on spatial anomalies and time travel far too much, and yes, some of the tech speak is risible, making little to no sense to the average viewer. But the show boasted some excellent production value and managed to make an action-orientated take on Star Trek work. Some episodes really did look feature quality. What's quite sad about watching this now is the realisation that this was the end of Star Trek as we knew it, although we didn't know it at the time. With the exception of Nemesis, the fourth and final Next Generation movie released in 2001, every Star Trek project since the end of Voyager has been a prequel or a reboot. No more going boldly, rather more cynical rehashing. Star Trek has been going in the wrong direction since 1999, preferring to cash in on nostalgia and live off past glories than truly expand the universe and take us further into the future. Whilst Voyager may not have believed in itself, it did at least believe in Star Trek, far more than Discovery or the J.J. Abrams movies do. And it did give us some very good Star Trek to go back and enjoy. Voyager is better than its reputation suggests, and it appears that the show, thanks to Netflix streaming, is being reappraised. People who grew up with Voyager are talking openly about its impact, about how Janeway meant something to the young girls and teens watching the show. That's not nothing. That's important. And you know, if you want to see a Voyager that does believe in its premise, check out the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. If you want to see its influence, watch the Orville. And then check out the show itself. Like me, you may end up being surprised.
Okay, shall we have a look at the email sack? Uh, our first email tonight regarding the seventh Doctor and Mary Jane is from Alistair Jakes again. Hi, Alistair. Nice to hear from you again. I am writing this a few days after listening to your Remembrance of Remembrance of the Daleks episode, so I might be a bit fuzzy. I was having a bad day that day, and your episode cheered me right up. Hearing the Seventh Doctor's theme still gives me goosebumps and makes me happy. See, different strokes, you know. I was like, oh, really? But, you know, other people love that. So, to each their own. Which might be something of an indicator of the tone of the email, continues Alistair. I am not one of those fans who insist people see things my way. And I don't want to give that impression. But consider this an alternative approach to think on. If your first impression of the Seventh Doctor was the ridiculous clown, I understand your reticence. I came to the Seventh Doctor through novels like Love and War, Human Nature, Lung Barrow, and even the comparatively less good Nightshade. The Doctor you hate is the Bruce Wayne to the Doctor I Loves Batman. I don't wish to spoil later episodes, but as Remembrance of the Dalek shows, the Seventh Doctor is far more than a clown playing the spoons and mixing up his metaphors. A now Voyager-style skim through the Virgin New Adventure Doctor Who books touching on the best of that series might be something to consider in the future if you're interested. There are some damn good stories in that run, and the Seventh Doctor is mighty. That said, books are long, and 90s-era deconstructions aren't for everybody. My experience with the Seventh Doctor's run, and the Max Smith TV series, which has some similarities, I feel, mean that I have a different perspective on the Murray Jane situation compared to you. I grant that you probably read the Spider-Man comics in the original order, so to you Mary Jane's importance is a blatant retcon, as Gwen Stacy was, and is from my perspective, so important to Peter Parker. I'm perfectly fine accepting that Peter Parker loved Gwen first, events happened and he moved on. I can see our fandom and comics lore enshrining the woman who came afterward might be galling to you, and that's valid. We are here to hear your perspective, after all. But here's my counter-explanation for the inconsistencies in Mary Jane's behaviour. If she knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man from day one, however, Murray Jane is lying through her teeth because she's smart enough to see that Peter is trying to keep his identity a secret for a reason and doesn't want to complicate things by revealing the truth. You accept Peter Parker lying to everyone. Why not Murray Jane? Well, first of all, I think we're, we're, we shall interrupt ever so slightly there, just to say, for the most part, when I when I take the piss out of the Murray Jane always new retcon, it's because I'm doing just that. I'm taking the piss. As retcons go, the Murray Jane new from early on doesn't bother me. Not really. In fact, as it was originally presented in the comics, um, in God, I think it was Amazing Spider-Man 269. That's just off the top of my head. It's somewhere around there. It's in the 260s. Tom DeFalco wrote it in such a way that the reader could guess or make guesstimates as to where it was that Murray Jane found out the truth. And in that particular case, I had no problem with it because you could always kind of say, well, she kind of discovered after she started dating him, after Gwen died, and she put it together herself, because Mary Jane is quite smart. It would also give an excellent reason for somebody like Mary Jane to turn down Peter's marriage proposal, which she did around Amazing Spider-Man 180-ish, 80, 80-90s, in the 80s, 180s, 190s. And that made a lot more sense to me as a reader. Because it gives Murray Jane credit, 
for having the intelligence to work out that the person she's dating is also a superhero. Because there is no getting around the fact that an awful lot of times it does make out the characters to be incredibly stupid that they can't figure this out. If you've ever seen somebody you know wearing a mask, it does not disguise them at all. You can tell it's them straight away from any number of things, the eyes, the voice, the body language, there's any number of ways to tell who somebody is. This is why as well in a lot of TV shows and movies, I can always tell who the bad guy is the mask because I recognise the actor. And you're like, well, he's a big star, so he's going to be the bad guy. So that's that's my original take on the material. Now, later on, there was a graphic novel called Parallel Lives written by Jerry Conway. And in that, Jerry established that Gwen, sorry, Murray Jane found out from the very beginning, that she literally from the beginning, she saw Spider-Man leave the Parker household and deduced that Peter was Spider-Man even though it's not made clear in any of the original comics that Murray Jane knew Peter before she actually meets him. That's, that's never even mentioned. We can assume she does, but if a bombshell like Murray Jane regularly visited Anna Watson's house, who was next door to the Parkers, surely Peter would have noticed her. Murray Jane was not the kind of woman that a 15-year-old boy would not notice. And that's ultimately where my retcon problem comes from that later established continuity thing that she knew from the beginning. Because that, A, takes away from the character being smart enough to work it out, and B, it is so much of a retcon that it is so easy to go through the earlier comic books and point to all the places where it's clear that she wasn't supposed to know. So it isn't a case of me accepting that Murray Jane's lying to people. It's that the retcon in numerous places doesn't work. And I just like to take the piss out of it. It doesn't bother me. It's not an egregious retcon, such as Gwen Stacy, I don't know, shagging the dad of Peter Parker's best friend and getting knocked up by him with twins. Yes, that happened, Alistair. Now, I know you're not a comics reader, so, so that's, I'm not kidding. That is a story that happened. Well, Marvel kind of think it happened. I kind of pretend that it didn't. Anyway, that's that's the that's where I'm at with the Murray Jane thing. Most of the time I am just taking the piss because it is fun to do so. It might also explain Murray Jane not being as good a dancer as Gwen Stacy, continues Alistair. If she's lying through her teeth every time she's with the spider gang, she might not want to let on just how good she is. It's also just possible that whatever her own feelings for Peter, she can she can see sorry, Peter and Gwen want each other more and is trying to help them get together. Behold, I am and the greatest dancer in the world. Oh no, how shocking. Science nerd Gwen Stacy, who is just perfect for you, just beat me, Peter. Maybe Murray Jane getting a job with the monsters, mobsters, not monsters, same thing, I suppose, is her baiting Spider-Man to come snooping. I will be listening to how many times Murray Jane accidentally lands herself in trouble and has to be rescued. I'm not excusing the bad writing here, just saying that I can tell myself a different story around the framework presented. Keep up the good work. Alistair Jakes. Oh, thank you, Alistair. It is. It's just a different perspective on it. Like I say, it's not a retcon that overly bothers me. Um, and I like to have a lot of fun with it, with the idea that it was later established that she knew from the very beginning, when she quite clearly didn't. In fact, before we, we carry on, let me just pull down off the bookshelf here the Amazing Spider-Man official index of the Marvel Universe. 
and find out, because it will bug me if I don't find out exactly which issue number that was. Here we go. Oh, 250, darling. Oh, I was so close. So we'll be covering more Spider-Man in the future, so I hope you look forward to it. Thank you, Alistair. Our next email, Nathaniel Wayne has emailed in. The lovely Nathaniel, whose uh, YouTube channel, Council of Geeks, is well worth seeking out and listening to. I like Nathaniel. I don't often agree with Nathaniel, but I do love listening to him. Andrew, Nathaniel. So, firstly, some much-needed apologies. I've fallen behind on quite a few podcasts by quite a bit lately, some by more than a year, and that has regrettably included yours. Time is becoming something I'm rapidly realising that I don't have nearly enough of. Yeah, it's the only thing we can't buy more of, isn't it? But seeing that this latest episode covered my favourite seventh Doctor story, it was an easy call to jump to that, even going past all the episodes I'm behind on. I say it's my favourite Seventh Doctor, though I should state that I haven't actually seen all that many of his adventures yet. It's really just this, Curse of Fenric, Time and the Rani, and Ghost Light that I've seen so far. This is owing to the fact that I'm filling in my classic Who gaps rather haphazardly, rather than doing things in any particular order. Actually, these days, the Patreon supporters for the Council of Geeks YouTube channel actually do the voting on what classic story I'll review next, so it's only partly in my hands these days. Plug firmly inserted, you are welcome. Also, while I haven't seen a ton of McCoy's era, I have caught some of his big finish work, with the fearmonger showing that McCoy and Sophie Aldred have lost absolutely none of their spark. But really, this episode is why I hold the Seventh Doctor as highly as I do. He's still only mid-tier for me, but at this point the only Doctor I flat out don't get is Peter Davison. Even Baker II eventually had a redemption through big finish, but Davison, I just don't get it. See, I like Davison... But a lot of that is my memories. I have rewatched very little of Davison's. I've rewatched The Five Doctors on occasion, because it's fun. And Caves of Androzani I have on Blu-ray. I don't think I have Blu-ray on DVD. I don't think I have any other Peter Davison adventures other than Castrovalva. So I have been very tempted by the Blu-ray box set of his first season. Because I wouldn't be buying stuff again. The reason that I've held off on buying the two Tom Baker releases so far, is I have pretty much all of Tom's stories on DVD. So it's it's getting to the point with me that you have to have a pretty damn good reason to make me shell out money for something again. Um, I'm at that point in my life now where I don't need more than one copy of things. If I can watch it or read it, I don't need another copy of it. So I haven't, as of yet, bought any of the Blu-rays. I may be tempted by John Pertwee's first season, because I only have Spearhead from Space, which is obviously already on Blu-ray, so that would be nice. And the rumour, the rumour, I stress, is that the next Blu-ray release is going to be Sylvester McCoy's final season. In fact, the last season of Classic Who. By all accounts, extras, extra extras have been filmed. Now... Uh, obviously, I'm stressing that there's a rumour. However, from the same place, I did read the rumour that John Pertwee's first season would be uh, the next Blu-ray release because they'd filmed some extras for it. And lo and behold, that has come to pass. So I have no reason to doubt that rumour uh, that McCoy's and indeed the final season of Classic Who is going to be next. And if that's the case, I may be tempted to wait for the, the Blu-ray. Although I was in an HMV yesterday in Birmingham, because I'm doing a lot of running around at the moment for work, and they had an extensive Doctor Who DVD collection, and all of Sylvester McCoy's final season are currently only six quid a pop. So that's basically only 24 quid for the entire season. 
and it becomes a case of maybe I should just buy them instead of paying 40 quid for the Blu-rays. So it may be tempting to see exactly what the extra, extra features are, because I know that certainly with Battlefield, Ghostlight and Curse of Fenric, there are extended versions of those stories on the Blu-ray. And my understanding is that Curse of Fenric benefits immensely from the extra runtime, which my understanding, again, is that it runs for almost the equivalent of another episode. There was like 20 minutes of footage cut out of that show that they've reinstated into the feature length version. So essentially, they've made that into a four-parter rather than a three-parter. So mm, I'm still I'm still toying on that. I'm still still in the air. Uh... Anyway, that's a whole other tangent, says Nathaniel. And ironically, as I went off on a tangent, coming back to remembrance of the Daleks, I can say that even to the eyes of a late 30s whippersnapper like myself, it holds up quite well on pretty much all the fronts. You actually skipped over what might be my favourite scene. The Doctor discussing the ethics of altering time under the guise of discussing sugar in a cafe. The server is played wonderfully by Joseph Marcel, who would go on to his most recognisable work as Geoffrey Butler, the butler, in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's a wonderful little back and forth that feels like both a nod and, sorry, a nod to and continuation of the fourth Doctor's Do I Have the Right Crisis Moment in Genesis of the Daleks. Uh, another aside... I almost had that scene in as a clip, and ultimately, as good as it is, I, I did feel that it's kind of superfluous to the story, and so I didn't end up talking about it, and as such, I didn't end up inserting it as a clip. But when I was watching it, that certainly stuck in my mind enough that I thought, that's that's a clip for the show. Um, but like I said, ultimately, I didn't end up mentioning it in the episode. You're absolutely right in many ways, continues Nathaniel, that this feels like a prototype of what Russell T. Davis would do with the show nearly 20 years later. Ace feels like a beta version of Rose, and I actually prefer her to Rose, and the callbacks feel very similar to how Davis would go about it in his time. This might be why I've warmed to this one right off, as opposed to the feeling of, well, I guess you had to be there, which is how I felt about a number of renowned episodes of the classic show. This feels like a modern episode. Good work, as always. You'll know when I catch up to earlier stuff because you'll get flooded with emails. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Way. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. I will very much look forward to that. Um, oh, I didn't mention that is is uh, the email title because I'd scrolled down past it. It was Remembering the Remembrance of a Remembered Remembrance, which I quite like. That's quite clever. As I said, Nathaniel does the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, which is well worth checking out. I really enjoy that. Okay, we'll knock it on the head there because I have an elsewhere to be. I know that how this works is I can just add bits later, should I choose to do, but I do have to go and pick my wife up from work, so I need to go right now. There's another two epi uh, episodes, another two emails in the email sack, but I'll cover those next time. And what will next time be? I hear you ask. Well, this is one of those rare occasions where that episode is already written. I'm going to be looking at the BBC's much maligned, largely forgotten, but ultimately quite interesting, late 80s science fiction television show, Star Cops, which was written by Chris Butcher, who worked on a number of episodes of Doctor Who, as well as script editing Blake Seven. So that's next time. Hope you can join me. And remember, well, actually, based on Russell T. Davis's new drama, Years and Years, everything isn't going to be all right. Hmm. Let's just stick with the, the optimistic outlook, should we? And hope that everything's going to be fine. See you next time. Oh, if you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. That's where you email me. I'll see you next week or whenever.